0: From Illinois to California, South Carolina to Iowa, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the Biden administration has injected woke policies into the home mortgage business, and if you have good credit, borrowing will cost you more. Roger Valdez from the Center for Housing Economics and the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity is here with details. The nation's southern border is now being overrun, and congressional Republicans have taken action. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Federal regulators are not going to take your gas stove and dishwasher away, but they are going to make it more costly and less efficient. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from Ben Lieberman of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And the possibility that neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump will be their party's nominees for president next year is growing by the day. Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA explains why on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. In a misguided effort to make home ownership more affordable, the Biden administration has imposed a rule that will penalize those with good credit scores. For details, we turn to Roger Valdez. He is director of the Center for Housing Economics and a fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Roger, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Roger, the Biden administration has propagated new rules that would actually levy a fee on folks with good credit who are applying for mortgages to have that money then go to folks who don't have such good credit. You want to go into some of the details about what the administration is now requiring?
1: Well, it's a pretty arcane move that they made with a a schedule that is promulgated for loans that are are backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So it's it's for for loans that have some government backing, and there's a schedule that those loans have that have some interest charges, and those interest charges are, are based on credit score and a number of other things. And so what it appears that they're doing is they're moving those around. So that if you have higher credit on that schedule, you're going to pay slightly higher interest fees. And if you have lower credit, in some cases, it's going to be lower. And so the the thing that has frustrated people or upset people is the idea that, hey, I worked hard for my credit score to pay my bills on time and to do all the things I need to do to be financially sound. And now I'm going to be paying extra fees, whereas somebody that hasn't done that is going to pay less. And so that's essentially what it appears to be happening there, although there's some differences about what the actual impact would be. It's probably not huge in a 30-year mortgage. It's probably a couple thousand dollars one way or the other. But I think the intention behind it was to try to level things out for people that are not being able to get into homes. And the biggest disparity in the country right now is between white households and black households, white households' own homes or pay mortgages, about 72% of them, whereas only about 44% of black households are are owners or paying a mortgage. And so how do you fix that? And this is part of a, long, a larger effort to address that.
0: Addressing that problem certainly has merit, of course, but Roger, looking at this, we went through this housing bubble that burst back here, what, about 12, 13, 14 years ago, and it sent the country into a recession, and a large part of that was because mortgages were given to people who ultimately weren't able to pay for them. Are we setting ourselves up for a repeat?
1: That's part of the problem here, broadly, is that, yes, risk measures do end up affecting people and their ability to buy homes and cars and everything else. It makes the money that they're borrowing more expensive, and if that money gets too expensive, then they can't make the purchase. And so taking that away, taking that measure away, removes a a way of analyzing, well, how much do I charge this person for the money that I'm going to give them because the risk is higher. And that's a problem because if you're blinding yourself or you're limiting what you can use or if you're changing that scale, yes, you could end up making loans or you could end up privileging riskier borrowers and those people could walk away with something that they can't ultimately pay. I don't think that's gonna happen because of this particular change. But I think underlying this, we have to ask the question, is it better to help improve people's credit scores or improve their risk profile actively and with policy and with programs and with efforts so that they're they're lowering their risk or they're getting the measurement is capturing things that they're doing right besides just the typical credit score. So I think the the way to solve this problem with the disparity between ownership in the different populations is to try and figure out ways to expand the measure so it captures other positive things besides just the balance on a credit card and, and what the credit score is today and trying to increase that mix.
0: There also are issues in the housing rental market. And, Roger, we have some municipalities around the country, larger cities in particular, that are doing things like eliminating background checks and eliminating the ability to use credit scores when somebody is applying to rent an apartment or condominium, a townhouse, whatever. What impact do you see that as having?
1: What happens is elected officials in these places say, there's data presented by advocates that says, look, certain people in the community are being screened out of leases. They can't get a lease because they've got bad credit, criminal background, or they have a previous eviction on their record or something in their tenancy history that makes them a higher risk. And again, that's absolutely true. If you show up and you have a criminal background, you have an eviction, and your credit score is 500 or less, or maybe non-existent, that presents a very risky profile for a lease. That makes people angry, and so what they want to do is ban the use of those measures. Well, that's The right word for it is, let's just say, short-sighted, because what happens is you don't do anything to help that individual. You're not doing anything to help that person improve their situation. You're simply blinding the the person that is going to be uh, renting their private property to you from seeing exactly what your, your risk is. What that's going to do is that's going to make the person leasing property simply raise their rents because they have no other way to offset that risk. Many housing providers across the country work with people with risky profiles. That's what they do because they want to, because they understand, first, there's a business in it. You know There are people that need housing that have tough records. And they need a place to go and they have money to spend and housing providers say, I want to serve that market. It's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But if you start taking away my ability to say, okay, this person's riskier, I'm maybe going to charge them a higher deposit or I'm going to do something to try and offset that risk. Then the only option I have is to raise my rent and that's going to price that person out of my, out of my apartment. Uh, that I'm renting, or my townhouse, or my single family home. That just means fewer housing opportunities for people with riskier backgrounds.
0: Sometimes good intentions really do backfire, and we're seeing that in the housing market today. Roger Valdez is director of the Center for Housing Economics. He is also a fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Roger, tell us a bit about each of those organizations, and where can folks go on the web if they want to learn more about this issue?
1: Well, you can go to Center for Housing Economics, which is just economics, which is like the two things pushed together. And then F R E O P P F-R-E-O-P-P.org is where Freeop
0: has their site. And tell us just a little bit about those organizations. Center for Housing
1: Economics was created to support um, efforts to offer better solutions to the problems that we just talked about. And then Foundation for Research and Equal Opportunity looks at how can we improve people at the at fifty percent of area median income or less, achieve economic goals that they have like home ownership?
0: Roger Valdez of the Center for Housing Economics and the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Roger, thank you for being back with us. Well, thank you for having me. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth, a very, very busy week in the nation's capital. We're gonna check in on a number of fronts. Good to have you here, Scott. Great to be back, Loman. Dominating the news, the end of Title 42, the immigration crisis at the nation's southern border, the Biden administration's got, of course, trying to pin the blame on Congress, but Congress has responded. Want to bring us up to date?
2: Well, the House Republicans have responded, and they've passed the most comprehensive border security package, really, in, in the last 35 years. And I think it's it's a testament to the overall leadership of people like Chip Roy, people like Kevin McCarthy that really wanted to try to address this issue. Now, obviously, this isn't a bill that's going to be signed into law because we know that Senate Democrats are going to sit on their thumbs. And we also know that the White House is not interested in securing the border. We have a Secretary of Homeland Security that has repeatedly come before Congress and denied that there's even a border crisis or an illegal immigration crisis. But we're all seeing the drone footage of hundreds and thousands of people that are lined up ready to come across the border after Title 42 expires. And it, just to kind of remind the listeners, during the coronavirus emergency, there was a emergency declaration that put in place restrictions on border entry. And so, the question on whether or not Title 42 is going to be enforced and uh, allowing people to come across the border. Now that that's expired along with the emergency declaration, you've got all these uh, folks that are ready to claim asylum here in the United States. So the House Republican bill would take a number of steps to increase border security, to increase the resources that we have within the border and, and the interior, to enforce really uh, more of a legal immigration system. We know that we need asylum reforms. We know that we need reforms to visa overstays. And we know that we need a strengthening of the physical border. And so I think that's what Republicans were aiming to do. There's also a lot of concern about what the cartels are able to accomplish on the border. And if the U.S. is really treating the cartels like they don't really exist and not addressing that problem, you're having a human trafficking issue. Uh, Which we've seen very much over the last couple of years during the Biden administration. So, immigration was a big, big priority of Kevin McCarthy and the new House Republicans. This bill was titled H.R. 2, meaning it was one of the big, big promises that they made with the commitment to America to show that Republicans could pass legislation that would secure the border. But we need to have the White House, we need to have the United States Senate in order to actually get new law signed.
0: Meanwhile, there were discussions at the White House, including all of the above, over the fact that the nation has hit its debt limit and supposedly a crisis looming on that front. Any progress there?
2: No. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. But the problem is, is that Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer are refusing to negotiate with the House Republicans who have actually passed their bill. Democrats are unable to pass anything. We know that 43 Senate Republicans... Signed a letter led by Senator Mike Lee, and this includes Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell as a signatory. That letter said that they would oppose cloture on any clean debt limit increase. What that means is that these Senate Republicans are not just going to allow Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer to increase the debt limit by some enormous amount without any fiscal reforms attached to it. And that means that Chuck Schumer can't get a bill out of the Senate right now on a clean debt limit increase and he's going to have to come to the negotiating table. But the first time in 97 days was when they met earlier this week, and President Biden was unwilling to make any sort of an offer to the, to the House Republicans and Speaker McCarthy. Same thing with Chuck Schumer. It seemed to me that they're basically just talking past each other, and Democrats are trying to rattle the fear-mongering right now. They want to say, "Oh, all the consequences that are going to have if we have a default on our debt obligations. Well, uh, nobody's going to default on our national debt obligations and, and the payments on our net interest. I think President Biden need to realize they do not have the leverage here because they don't have the House majority. In 2019, President Trump negotiated with Nancy Pelosi to get a debt limit increase. I think it's the same scenario now with House Republicans having new majority that was elected last November and a slim majority, they passed their bill 217 to 215. So Kevin McCarthy is having to count every single vote to get it over the finish line, and that's going to matter when it comes to negotiation with Schumer and Biden.
0: Meanwhile, on the political front, Donald Trump actually did a town hall on CNN and, of course, neither of those two parties particularly care for the other one. Seemed like it was a prescription for some fireworks. Scott, is that what happened?
2: Yeah, I think that President Trump did a really good job sort of fighting back the the top-line hits that have been thrown at him by Democrats. President Trump refuted the general message from Democrats on January 6th on Ukraine and Russia he sort of sparred toe-to-toe, uh, given the resolution with his rape trial in, in New York. You've got all these other issues that he took head-on, and you kind of wonder, did CNN give him this platform with a bunch of Republicans in the audience as a way to boost their ratings? Why exactly did they put Caitlin Collins out there to have this town hall I think that President Trump handled himself quite well. And we're going to now see how the response is from voters in places like New Hampshire as the presidential primary gets underway in earnest over the next couple of months.
0: Yeah, you would think by now these reporters and, and so-called uh, moderators of these uh, events got, would learn that uh, they're not really going to get the best of the former president, are they? Not Not this week, at least. Not this week, at least. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club.
2: Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We have over 500,000 members that are united in the idea of economic freedom and liberty. Check us out at clubforgrowth.org and sign up to become a member for free.
0: Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we'll check in with you next week. Thank you.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: Under the guise of fighting climate change, the Biden administration is enacting new rules to regulate your dishwasher. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine talks with Ben Lieberman from the Competitive Enterprise Institute.
3: New York State is banning natural gas hookups in new construction. That means no gas stoves in any new houses in that state. The Biden administration is pushing new rules for dishwashers and other appliances. And when you put it all together, nobody's banning certain consumer choices when it comes to appliances, but they're certainly making it much harder to exercise those choices. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today who's going to walk us through all of this regulatory minutia is Ben Lieberman. He's a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and he joins us on the phone now. Ben, thanks for taking some time with us. Well, thank you for having me. Let's start with the latest from the Biden administration, these new rules. This is a thing that's been kind of cooking in the background for a while, pardon the pun. Uh, But this is uh, these new regulations for dishwashers. Tell us a little bit about what they are and what they mean for the average. consumer. Okay. well, last
4: Friday, the Department of Energy proposed a new energy efficiency and water efficiency standard for dishwashers. The problem is the existing standard is so troublesome that it's already caused a great deal of problems for consumers, particularly people complain that now because of these standards, because of these regulations, dishwashers take two or more hours to do a load of dishes where before the regulators got involved, it only took about one hour. And dishwashers is bad enough, but there's pending regulations on stoves that may uh, increase the, the likelihood that gas stoves won't be available in the future. There's also pending regulations for uh, clothes washers. So you, you mentioned kitchens, but it goes beyond the kitchen. Refrigerators as well. There's a whole host of regulations making air conditioners more expensive. So chances are if it uses energy or water around the house, the Biden administration has a regulation in the works that's going to raise costs and compromise product performance.
3: Yeah, well, let's talk about some of the other stuff in just a minute. But on the dishwasher point in particular, I think it's interesting, uh, and you can definitely explain this in more detail than I can, but I mean, it's, it's actually like, it's more efficient to use a dishwasher to clean your dishes than it is to like, get out the dishpan and fill it up with hot water and do it yourself. And so like, in some ways, If you're discouraging the use of dishwashers, you're actually encouraging people to use less efficient means to clean their dishes.
4: Oh, absolutely. You want dishwashers to work as well as possible. That's how you save energy and water. But when you start regulating dishwashers, raising their costs, adversely impacting their performance, encourage people to wash dishes instead, or since they don't work quite as well, some people rinse their dishes before they put them in the dishwasher. All of this is is a time waste as well as a uh, water and, and energy waste. So uh, these standards, they're not good for consumers. They may not even be good for the environment, even though that's the stated purpose.
3: Yeah, I think it's like so much in the bureaucracy, right? It's like looking at one thing in a vacuum. Again, pardon the appliance pun. But it's like looking at one thing in a vacuum and saying, oh, we'll make dishwashers more efficient and not looking at any of the knock-on consequences like you were just saying about people may rinse their dishes before putting them in, which, hey, you're just using more water and more energy then. Ben, let's turn and quickly look at what's going on with gas stoves because for months now I was told that this was a conspiracy theory. They're not actually coming for your gas stoves. But now it turns out, okay... Maybe they're not coming to rip the gas stove that I have in my kitchen out of my wall, but there are going to be new regulations, it looks like, and some states like New York have already adopted them that will make it almost impossible to buy a gas stove in the future.
4: Well, New York is banning natural gas hookups in new construction, so that means uh, new buildings, new residences won't have natural gas for stoves, for heating, for anything. And that's significant because natural gas is more than three times cheaper than electricity on a per-unit energy basis. And all of this foolishness goes back to the climate agenda. Natural gas is a fossil fuel, so the climate activists inside and outside the Biden administration want it gone. But it doesn't really make sense for consumers, and it doesn't make sense for the the environment because generating electricity has emissions of its own. But the Department of Energy is going after gas stoves. The Consumer Product Safety Commission is going after gas stoves. A law last year provides... $840 giveaway if you buy an electric stove, but nothing if you buy a gas stove. And then there's these bans on natural gas hookups in New York and elsewhere that may make it hard to use natural gas for anything. You add it all up, and there's definitely a war on natural gas and, more importantly, a war on consumer choice.
3: Yeah, they're not coming for your gas stoves. They're coming for the gas in your stove. Like you can have a gas stove, you just won't be able to hook it up to anything. It'll it'll be useless. We're talking with Ben Lieberman. He's a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, talking about some of these new regulatory policies coming out of, well, the Biden administration, but also states like New York that are attacking, uh, as you just said, Ben, really consumer choice when it comes to appliances. Only about a minute left, but let's let's pull back just for a second here and look big picture. This is all being done via small little regulatory changes i mean maybe not small ones but regulatory changes so it's i mean it's not a it's not a ban on gas stoves no nobody is passing a law that says gas stoves are now illegal but like just walk us through like the way in which these things happen because it's being done without an act of congress it's being done without state legislatures making these decisions
4: yeah well these regulators can engage in death by a thousand cuts they can come up with one regulation that raises the cost of natural gas stoves, another regulation that uh, makes them work less well, so the advantages of gas stoves may not be there Anymore, And that's, that's a, a big issue. If, if, if gas stoves aren't better, then cooks won't, won't, won't choose them. Right now, gas stoves are, are the preferred overwhelming choice of people who are serious cooks. But you start tinkering with the features that natural gas stoves have, then you, you eliminate that advantage. And then on top of that, you have bans on natural gas hookups in new buildings, including new residences. And so you can't have natural gas appliances if you don't have natural gas. There's tax incentives that go to electrification of home appliances. You get big bucks if you use an electric stove, but nothing if you use a gas stove. You add it all up. Uh, None of this is a ban on gas stoves, but you add it all up, and it can come close to a ban.
3: Yeah, you add up all the little things, as you said, death by a thousand cuts, and you can end up making some pretty big changes to what consumers uh, are effectively able to buy, maybe not allowed to buy, but what they're able to buy. That's unfortunately all the time we have for today. Ben, thanks for taking some time with us.
4: Well, thank you for having me.
3: And again, that's Ben Lieberman. He's a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. They do great work over there. Check him out online at cei.org. They dig through all of the, the regulatory stuff that comes out of the White House and all the agencies here in D.C. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Check out our coverage of what's going on around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal.
0: Developments this past week may make it more and more likely that neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump will be nominated for president next year. Colin Hanna of Lead Freedom Ring USA has details on this American Radio Journal commentary.
5: A couple of months ago, I made a bold prediction here on American Radio Journal concerning the next presidential election, that neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump would be on the general election ballot in November 2024. A friend said he'd gladly bet against me if I were foolish enough to put real money on the table. He even offered me 10 to 1 odds. Nonetheless, I'm more convinced now than I was then. Let's look at each of the two candidates. Joe Biden at 80 is showing unmistakable signs of mental decline, even if he can summon the strength and focus to appear with it for rather short periods of time. I recently spoke with a now retired Delaware state police trooper who spent some time on the Biden protection detail. And he confirmed my concerns that at 80, Biden is definitely slipping. He regularly falls asleep when no one is talking to him, and when he is at the end of a long day, he loses his train of thought repeatedly. This is not dementia, at least not yet. But neither is it the alert thinking that our commander-in-chief needs when trying to figure out how to deal with an increasingly complex world. A recent ABC News Wall Street Journal poll showed that 70% of voters under 40 in all parties said he does not have the mental sharpness to serve as president. The same negative view was held by 61% of those 40 to 64 and 55% of those over 65. My friend Hugh Hewitt this week told Special Report host Brent Baer that he also expects Biden to exit the race. He drew parallels with Lyndon Johnson's withdrawal in 1968. He opined that General Secretary Xi, Russian President Putin, and Iranian Ayatollah Khomeini all think Biden is infirm, citing a new Gallup poll in addition to the ABC News Wall Street Journal poll. If these numbers hold in subsequent polls, Democrats will fear a Biden defeat. If the investigation of Hunter Biden's influence-peddling schemes becomes clear and undeniable, that could also render Biden so weakened that Democrat power brokers will want to engineer a removal. They'll then need to deal with the problem of Kamala Harris, who is widely perceived to be a terrible candidate, who can't be forced off the ticket without provoking outrage from the party's African-American voters. But perhaps a soft landing can be found in a judicial appointment like the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, often referred to as the second highest court in the land. Trump's greatest vulnerability isn't the age issue, it's the several legal issues that face him. There are simply too many cases to reasonably expect him to elude them all. He was found liable for damages in a sexual assault and defamation civil case brought by E. Jean Carroll. He announced his decision to appeal, and that will only ensure that it stays in the public mind for months longer. This week, The Washington Post carried a story headlined, Sexual Abuse Verdict Renews Publican Doubts About Trump's Electability. Even if much of the MAGA base holds, moderates and independents will abandon him and make him unelectable in a general election. The CNN town hall with Trump this week was an embarrassment, although it showed that he still has that base. Many Republicans with whom I communicate regularly admit privately that they'd dearly love to find another candidate to support. Even if Trump wins a slew of primaries, It's a near certainty that he can no longer attract moderates and independents in the general, so he cannot win. And he hates to lose, so he might fabricate some health issue as the basis on which to drop off the ticket while saving face. It would be an act of political suicide if the Republican Party nominates him next summer when the list of legal defeats will be even longer than it is now. These scenarios will become increasingly plausible as Biden's mental decline becomes impossible to deny, and as Trump becomes even more stained by the charges against him. Neither party wants to lose, and by nomination time, both will want to move away from Biden and Trump. At least, that's how I see it. I welcome counter-arguments from the loyal listeners to American Radio Journal, but I won't take actual wagers. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal.
0: American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WVWP-FM in Fort Gay, West Virginia, KNSS-AM in Wichita, Kansas, along with WMWX-FM in Liberty, Ohio. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.